0: I'm Keith Deeson, and this is From the Ground Up, a podcast about how we make what we make. The materials, the tools, and the stories behind the things we build. This episode is brought to you by Total Boat. Total Boat is my go-to for all things epoxy, like most makers. But, they also carry a huge product line of paints, varnishes, adhesives, and specialized formulations for the maker community. They're the first sponsor for FTGU, so why don't you pop on over to their shop at TotalBoat.com and tell them I sent you. Bill Tritt was out of options. Here he was, standing in front of what looked to be an empty warehouse in South Los Angeles, an address he found by chance in an announcement for the opening of a new chemical company. Having tried his luck and been denied at every other supplier he contacted, he wasn't getting his hopes up. The door swung open and Bill stepped through. Each echoing footstep across the massive, empty space brought him further from his days working for Douglas Aircraft during World War II, further from his days building catamarans after the war, and further from the day he shook hands with John Green to design and construct a 20-foot racing yacht, the Green Dolphin, Bill's first foray into construction using fiberglass reinforced plastic. Fiberglass had technically been around for millennia. The ancient Phoenicians and Egyptians used it sparingly for decorative purposes in their small crafts and handiworks. Making glass fibers isn't difficult, just heating glass until it's molten and pulling it apart until it forms a strand is an experiment anyone can do with minimal equipment. However, it would take a stroke of luck and serendipity to discover how to mass-produce the material. 1932 Dale Kleist, a researcher for coining glass, was having trouble doing things that glass researchers do. In this case, it was welding two glass blocks together to form an airtight seal. His latest attempt utilized a metal layer gun, a tool used for bronzing baby shoes, to create a stream of molten glass that could fuse the two blocks together. A wayward jet of compressed air, however, accidentally turned a stream into an explosive shower of extremely fine glass fibers, finer than any that had been produced before. Corning, using this discovery to kickstart its fiberglass production, later merged with Owens, another enterprising glass company that was barking up the same tree, further refining and perfecting the process. By the 1940s, they had discovered methods of heat treating that would further augment the fibers, once woven together, to be more flexible and durable than ever before. It's these properties that allow fiberglass cloth to be embedded in plastic and molded into custom shapes. Until the invention of polyester resin in 1936 by Carlton Ellis of DuPont, fiberglass embedded in other plastics had been too brittle for practical purposes. During World War II, the Germans had made advances in the plastics production by refining the curing process. British intelligence stole these secrets from their adversaries and handed them over to American manufacturers, allowing firms like Owens Corning to produce airplane parts for the war effort. By 1942, resin had made its way into the hands of some ingenuitive boat builders, like Ray Green, who had been tinkering with other plastics to make one-off experimental watercraft since 1937. Once he got his first shipment of polyester resin, however, he built a day sailor with it, and many others followed suit with their own small craft, and later yachts, including Bill Tritt. Tritt began with the Green Dolphin and branched out building the first ever fiberglass masts and spars for sailboats. His company, Glass Bar, moved from its humble Costa Mesa beginnings to a larger headquarters in Santa Ana, California. It was from here that he had ventured to that warehouse in LA. As I said earlier, this episode is brought to you by Total Boat. I often get inspired when I do research and write up one of these FTGU episodes and this one is no different. I partnered with Total Boat to tell the story, and in the process, I found myself itching, no pun intended, to try out some fiberglass projects. The good thing is that Total Boat has me covered. They offer a large variety of both polyester and epoxy resins as well as the products you need to patch, repair and build with fiberglass, including the fiberglass itself. They're a big supporter of the maker community, as you've probably noticed on YouTube or Instagram. So, take your favorite maker's discount code and go buy some fiberglass supplies and build a concept car, or a bird bat, or a dinghy, or a truck cap, or a giant orangutan, or maybe some aircraft parts. Whatever you want. If it involves resin, a durable finish, or some fiberglass, Total Boat has got you. Bill's footsteps reflected off the hard, cold walls of the empty space. Every other supplier had denied him the ability to purchase even a solitary drum of polyester resin. The Korean War was in full swing, and the War Department was buying it all up to use in manufacturing, you guessed it, aircraft parts. His last chance lay in the small office that was coming into view as he traversed the warehouse floor. Inside the office was a young man named Bud Crawford. He told Bill that the warehouse was indeed a routing point for shipments of polyester resin manufactured at the company plant in Naugatuck, Connecticut. The building they were standing in was owned by Naugatuck Chemical Company, inventors of Naga Hyde and a subsidiary of U.S. Rubber. They, as Bud explained, only dealt with larger companies than Glassbar. Without an order from the War Department, Bud, though sympathetic to Bill's problem, just couldn't send any resin his way. Disappointed, Bill was led out to the loading dock by Bud. There went his last chance. He couldn't continue to manufacture boats or anything else without that resin. They both reached daylight when he noticed Bud had stopped walking and was staring. Staring at the car Bill had driven to the meeting. Hey, what's that? That was the Brooks Boxer. Air Force Major Ken Brooks was building a sports car. This actually wasn't uncommon in 1950. In America, there really weren't any consumer choices at the time for such a vehicle, so most enthusiasts built theirs themselves. Brooks had purchased and stripped down a 1940s Willys Jeep to the chassis and drivetrain, and added a highly modified V8 engine, and not much else. When he took his friend, Bill Tritt, for a ride in it, Bill could see the pavement rushing below their feet, as the car didn't even have a floor. He noted that while Ken was an excellent mechanic, he didn't have much of a talent for design. Brooks needed a body for his new toy, and explained that he was thinking of having one made of aluminum. Bill knew the high cost an aluminum body would present, and offered his own solution, fiberglass reinforced plastic. It was cheaper, more lightweight, and Bill already had years of experience building with it. In fact, his company Glassbar already had the capability to make the innovative body. Ken agreed and Bill began the design process. The design was not atypical for sports cars at the time. In fact, he based it off the Jaguar XK120. With its smooth curves and flowing silhouette, it was Bill's favorite of the genre. He brought the finished plans to Ken and his wife Dolly for approval. Before too long, he was back at Glassbar working on their new custom car. Called the Brooks Boxer, after Dolly's love of the dog breed of the same name. That is what Bud was staring at. Within 24 hours, Dr. Earl Ebers, sales manager for Nagatuck's resin division and FRP enthusiast, was staring at it too. Bud had called Ebers and told him about the car. He had to see it for himself. Trent took Ebers and his associate, Bert McNamee, who worked in public relations for Naugatuck, for a few rides in the Boxer. They were impressed. The way it handled was as gorgeous as the way it looked. They agreed to commit to send them an air freight shipment of polyester resin. The car was a hit. It got a spread in Life magazine, in which they lowered the unpainted, translucent body onto lights to make it glow and debuted to great fanfare at the LA Motorama. Nagatuck paid for a run of four of what Tritt was now calling the Glass Bar G2, a slightly modified version of the original boxer. The first G2 off the line, the second ever of its kind, nicknamed the Alembic One, was purchased by Nagatuck Chemical and driven cross country by Ebers to test out its durability. The car performed superbly, and Naugatuck brought it to plastics trade shows and automobile conventions to promote the lightweight FRP that made it all possible. With all the good press and interest, the car was featured in a landslide of trade publications and popular car magazines, Glassbar was able to produce about 100 of the bodies to be sold nationwide. Most of these were bought by auto shops and mechanics and fitted onto corresponding chassis and then sold as entire cars. The cars handled so well they were often used as race cars. Hollywood types like Humphrey Bogart, Gary Cooper, and Rosemary Clooney all owned one. The combination of ancient materials and modern plastics enabled Tritt and his ilk to create fantastic designs that were both lightweight and durable. The holy grail of transportation design. The Glasspar G2, along with other early fiberglass car bodies, revolutionized sports car manufacturing. And paved the way for the Chevy Corvette, the classic American sports car, and its fiberglass reinforced plastic body, impacting American design and culture for generations to come. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder that if you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash or by visiting our sponsor for the episode, Total Boat. I can't thank them enough for their support of this show, helping me bring you all the stories about how we make stuff. So get on over to TotalBoat.com and pick up a little something to work on. I know you've been eyeing that Maker epoxy formulation, or that new pigment for your next big idea, or even that OutDrive AF anti-fouling prop and OutDrive aerosol spray, because sometimes you need to provide full season corrosion protection on underwater metals in an easy-to-use aerosol spray paint. I mean, who doesn't? Thanks, and until next time, this is Keith Decent saying, later makers.